Welcome to Curbside Consult. I'm Roma Batia, a current editorial fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine, and today I'm absolutely elated to speak with Dr. Eric Rubin, editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Rubin is also an infectious disease doctor by training and a professor of immunology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you, Dr. Rubin, for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks, Roma. I'm really curious. In prior interviews, you've mentioned that your mother was a librarian and your father was a salesperson, and they were absolutely determined for you to go to Harvard. Did your family also influence your career choice? And how did you exactly come into medicine and particularly ID? Well, I should be clear, before I run my mother's name through the mud, this was all my father, who, starting when I was about age five, I think, told me that he didn't care whether or not I became a doctor just as long as I went to medical school. So, yes, my parents had strong ideas about what they thought I should be, and they weren't in conflict with anything that I was thinking, so it worked out okay. What made them want you to be a physician? My father was a child of immigrants, and that was the ladder up. The first generation had to make some money to support the family, and the second generation went to school, so that was me. I can absolutely relate to that. When you were a medical student and a resident, what did you think about your medical career? I had no idea. I had no plan whatsoever. The only thing that helped shape what I did was the fact that I did research. I did a PhD, and I found that I liked that a lot. So I felt like anything that I did should allow me to continue to work in science. And science for me was basic science, laboratory bench science. So that does produce some restrictions on the kinds of practice that you can have. And for me, what I was thinking was that infectious disease, which can be constrained to be only inpatient service and a lot of time outside, or hemonc, which is usually mostly an outpatient practice, might work for that and be something interesting to do. So during my first week of internship, my first uh, attending was a guy named Mort Swartz, who was one of the founders of infectious disease, one of the grand old men of infectious disease at the time when they were all men. And he was an amazing person, the best doctor I've ever met, but also this incredibly kind and humble man. And so within my first week of internship, I decided infectious disease was for me, although I could never be Mort. <laughs> and what about infectious disease particularly drew you? Well, it turns out, and I'm not sure I knew this before I started doing it, that it's a great specialty because it's so incredibly varied. You don't see the same thing over and over again. I'm not going to impugn any of the other subspecialties. But it's unusual to see the same thing in a day. In fact, it's somewhat unusual to see the same thing in, in a week when you're doing inpatient consults. So there's a huge amount of variety. I also trained at the time that HIV was just starting to become a treatable disease, or at least we had some therapies that didn't work very well. But it was an enormous burden, and it turned out that that created a new outpatient specialty in infectious disease. And I also loved that. I loved the patients. I loved the fact that we could form these long-term connections with people who had a horrid disease at the time. And living through the time of the miracle of being able to treat these patients was so incredibly gratifying. I don't deserve any credit for it, but it felt so good to be able to do something. 
There's a lot of parallels between the HIV epidemic and COVID. I'm wondering, is during the time of your training, is that when you wanted to become involved with the medical journal? Or when did that idea come into your mind? Ha. Let's see. Should I tell the truth? When I was a lab person and I was approached by Lindsay Baden, actually, um, who is one of the deputy editors, about the possibility of becoming an associate editor at the journal several years ago, I didn't really understand how I was in any way qualified for that. But it sounded really interesting. And I came and I found out it was fascinating. It was really great. Our editorial meetings on Thursdays are the highlight of my week, and they were right from the start. So I loved that and thought that that was really what I wanted to do, and it allowed me to stay in the lab. When the editor-in-chief's job came open, when Jeff Drazen, my predecessor, announced that he was stepping down, I thought, wow, this would be a great job for someone. Not for me, but for someone. And it didn't even occur to me to apply I eventually was persuaded to apply, which I did reluctantly, because I didn't really want to give up the lab. When ultimately I had the opportunity to keep the lab going and to take the job, I took it, but still with a lot of trepidation. It turns out to be a fantastic job, so I'm really pleased that I had the opportunity to do it. And I'm so pleased to be here to learn from you. That's fantastic. Medical students and trainees in particular these days have a lot of different options. They can go into biotech. They can go into consulting. What would you say makes medical editing and publishing unique? So as an intellectual experience, it's absolutely fascinating. We see such a breadth of stuff. And getting back to what I said about infectious disease before, there is so much variety. And again, every day you see something different. And you learn about something in depth in a way that you would never do it. And one day it's a breakthrough in the therapy of renal failure. And the next day it's the basic molecular biology that defines a genetic disease. It's all over the place. It's so fascinating. So on one hand, there's that intellectual gratification. And on the other is the opportunity to help shape a message in a way that can be useful for treating patients. And I think that all of us as medical editors are very focused on that. We're not so much focused on just the niceness of getting everything right, but the implications of what it means when an author says something, what that will communicate to a clinician who has to care for a patient. I think that we, and I suspect all other medical journals, are very focused on What will happen if we publish this? What are the consequences of publishing this? Not just what are the right words. If we publish something which is misleading or incorrect, patients could be put at risk. And so we're very, very careful about trying to tell the story in the right way. And that has its own set of challenges, which are also interesting. So I think the process is interesting from the beginning when you get to see this exciting new research to the end when you try to get it into shape to be put out there for the public. So I think all aspects of it are very, very interesting. At the journal, we have deputy editors and associate editors, and you alluded to this when you were talking before. Can you tell us what are the basic job descriptions of these two types of editors? Sure. Associate editors are part-time editors. Their primary role is to 
assess research when it's submitted. So they see most manuscripts when they're submitted and read them and decide whether or not they're something that we might want to consider. If they are, they are subject experts who go and choose reviewers. They assess the reviews and decide if the manuscript is worth actually publishing or at least being strongly considered for publication, and they will present it at an editorial meeting if that's correct. They also will reject manuscripts at any stage, either before review or after review, based on what feedback that they've gotten from the reviewers. They essentially shepherd most manuscripts until the point where we decide that it's something we want to publish. At that point, it gets turned over to deputy editors. Deputy editors have two jobs. They're full-time, for the most part, full-time clinicians. They still continue to see patients, but they spend the vast majority of their time at the journal. They do some of the reviewing and assessing of manuscripts in much the way that associate editors do, and it kind of depends on the type of manuscript and the specific expertise of the deputy editor. But they're primarily responsible for taking manuscripts that we want to accept and working with the authors and the manuscript editors to get them into shape to be ready for publication. And that can mean making dramatic changes from changing lots of the wording, in fact, in some cases, almost every sentence, to actually changing the conclusions of the paper. And that is actually fairly common. Mm -hmm. And what type of skills do you think residents and fellows who are thinking that they want to pursue medical editing publishing, what kind of skills do you think it's important for them to have? Well, the first thing is to be good at what you're doing. I think that we don't need people who aren't interested in taking care of patients to be editors because our job, in a way, is to stand in for the readers. What would help me take care of this patient when they are on a ventilator in the ICU or are on dialysis? How would a particular finding influence how we care for them? So the first thing is to develop an expertise. And the second is to absolutely explore whether or not this is something you want to do. There are various ways of doing that. Roma, you're a fellow. That's true. And we have a fellowship program where we take three or four physicians every year who are either in training or have completed their training to spend a year and get an idea of what it's like to be an editor and to be in the publishing business. And I really urge people who are considering this to do that. There are lots of points of entry, though. And of course, the current editors, most of them got into this after there was the opportunity to do a fellowship. And they got into it either because they enjoyed writing. That helps because certainly being a good writer is part of the skill set that you need. Or because they were researchers themselves. In fact, almost all of our editors are researchers or were very active researchers in the past and had a lot of experience publishing themselves. So getting some sort of publishing experience is useful. Now, for a journal like ours, which is primarily a research journal, we're looking for researchers. So it's not just patient care. It's also that they have done research and gotten it to the point of publication so that they have some idea of what are the keys that need to be communicated. Right. And... We've heard a lot recently about how difficult it has become to obtain NIH funding. Do you think that as 
trainees explore this and come into their own careers, is this going to be a rate limiting step for them to be able to get publishing experience and to do their own types of research? I don't want to discourage people from research. I think that NIH funding goes up and down over time and that people should certainly try to do what they want to do. In fact, when people have done some research and found that it's not for them or find that obtaining funding is not very attractive, but they really enjoy the research, they're very good candidates for us because they know and understand the components of research, so they can be very good editors. But yes, I think that it is important to have gotten that experience, not necessarily as an independently funded investigator. Certainly in clinical research, there are many large studies where there are many investigators involved, not all of whom are the PI. So I think there are a lot of ways to get into research. In fact, in clinical research, it's pretty much the standard that you start out as a supported investigator, a co-investigator, before you'd be a PI. And I think that's excellent experience for someone who might want to consider publishing. So do you need to be a professor or an associate professor to be an editor at the journal? No. It depends a bit, though. We have kind of two different phenotypes. The associate editors, for the most part, are senior people. They've spent a lot of time in the field. They know a lot of people, which is very important, having connections so that they can recruit reviewers, so that they know what the important research studies are that are going on out there. I think that we're likely to continue to use more senior people in that position. For deputy editors, however, we have people who have started research careers and then decided that's not right for them who are interested in doing something like this, who continue to be clinically active, who tend to be younger, which is good for us, so we get them in their prime. And then we get people who have had very active careers as researchers and as clinicians who have editing experience as academic editors, usually, who come to us saying, you know, I've done this for 20 years. I'd like to do something different. So we have both ends of the spectrum. At the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's not true for every journal by any means, but we tend to hire slightly more senior people than some of the specialty journals might, only because, partly because we have the opportunity to do it, and partly because we expect them to be comfortable with a broad range of topics. Now, if you're a nephrologist, then you might handle a lot of kidney papers, but one of our deputy editors who's a nephrologist handles endocrinology, for example and pediatrics. Another one handles rheumatology. So we expect people to be able to be comfortable in a lot of different topics. Sure. And now I'm going to touch a little bit on an issue that's really close to a lot of people's hearts, and that is about diversity, equity, and inclusion. When you're talking about recruiting associate editors and deputy editors and even other staff at the journal, what kind of policies and programs do you have in place to ensure that we are able to gather a diverse and equitable employee group? Well, I think there are two different aspects to that. First is that we want to be able to draw from a pool of people that's diverse, that reflects the pool of physicians and preferably a pool that's better than the pool of physicians as far as diversity goes. And I think that there are ways we try to contribute to that. We are starting a program for medical students, for example, a mentoring program that will target students who are underrepresented in medicine. 
they're not going to be our editors for another 20 years. But we think it's very important to try to create a pool of people who might eventually come back, not just to us, but enrich the profession in general. When it comes to hiring individuals, we don't hire that many people. And so I think we have to make it a priority. Having different people in the room makes a huge difference. And I think that in the short time that I've been here at the Journal, I've seen that the discussion is shaped completely differently when we have people with different points of view. And so I think that's part of the reason that we want to be diverse. And it's a critical component when we're recruiting new people. But it's hard to look at that from a programmatic standpoint. We have the rare individual decisions to make. And when we can, I think we always have to opt for diversity to try to make the journal look like the people we serve. Absolutely. And recently at the journal, in terms of the articles that you're publishing, you've piloted some initiatives to try to increase the diversity of the research that you've been publishing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, I think we've been interested in diversity issues for a while, but of course it's come to the fore when after the George Floyd murder. And I think that has raised the profile quite a bit in a way that's been, I think, really positive for an organization like ours. It's made it much easier for us to focus on things that we need to focus on. That means that we have been publishing a lot more in the area of diversity, and we've also tried to make diversity a piece of everything we publish. In the first instance, we published a lot of pieces that address the questions of diversity. Now, quite honestly, at this point, a lot of them are more descriptive. They show the lack of equity in healthcare, in medical training, in access, particularly to advanced medical care. I think, honestly, we know this. We can keep on documenting it, and we should, but I'm really looking forward to the studies, particularly the research interventional studies that might tell us how we can better approach this problem. We've had some, and I look forward to more. In addition, we've asked that our authors, all of our authors, address the question of how representative their studies are. We have always included the basic demographics of patients, and that usually has included race and ethnicity, although not always. Now we're asking authors to not only include those data, if they have them, but also to address the question of whether or not the population they studied is representative of the population that has disease. And we do that in a somewhat formalized way, but a way that requires the author to really address the question, yes or no, is this representative? And if not, why? What's the effect of doing that? I think it draws attention to the issue. It can help someone interpret the study for their own patient, whatever their race and ethnicity, their age, their gender. But it also, to some extent, makes it very public. It shines a spotlight on the representativeness of studies in general. There are many reasons why studies aren't representative, but we would like to push them so they are more so. Now, this is a long-term project. Studies get planned years in advance, and we will be publishing studies that have not made a good attempt at recruiting representative populations for a while before I think we can have an effect. But if we don't start now, it won't happen. You see papers from both viewpoints. As a researcher, you're undertaking these investigations and executing research. But on the other side, you're also an editor. You're making sure that research findings are accurately described and making sure that they're comprehensive. 
Do you have any advice for medical students or trainees about doing good research? So I'll say something that I say to my own trainees, and I'm not sure that I have any particular wisdom here. You can ask them whether they think there's any wisdom, and they, <laughs> they might well say no. But it's always true that you know your own study, your own work better than anyone else ever can. You know the details of how it was done. You know where the problems were or the difficulties are likely to be that you're going to face, how hard it was to interpret, and the granular details of how the information was collected and what that looked like. No one else will ever see that. Because of that, it's really incumbent on you to be the most critical of your own work because no one else is going to have the tools to criticize it in the way that you can. One of the hardest things as an editor is to try to figure out when an author loves their own study, and they should, right? Everyone should really be invested in their own work. Can they be objective enough to be able to interpret that work in a way that is going to give you a good picture of whether or not you want to believe it? And it can be hard to tell. You never want to publish something that doesn't turn out to be true, or you want to do your best to publish something that's likely to be true. Now, time will tell. Obviously, people do excellent research and it gets shown to be not quite right over time because that's progress. That's the way it should be. But you don't want to publish something that's explicitly wrong. And that's incumbent on you to look carefully and not to believe in your own stuff too much. You've taken the ropes of the journal amidst a pandemic, and we've certainly seen and published a lot of COVID papers. It seems that during this time, journal editors in particular have been caught under a catch-22. You want to try to publish scientific findings fast enough so that clinicians and public health practitioners worldwide can act on them. But you also want to make sure that the findings are reliable and that they can be replicated. Can you talk about that a little bit and how you've tried to balance these two viewpoints? I think that my attitude toward this has been really shaped by working on the wards relatively early and at a few early points during the epidemic because patients would come in and I would have no idea what to do with them, quite honestly. And I was the infectious disease consultant. I would round with the team and the team would say, should we start hydroxychloroquine? Should we start tocilizumab? And I could say, I know the theoretical reasons why one or the other might work, but no one's ever tested it. So I just don't know. And I felt kind of powerless to know that I was helping patients when I made recommendations. And so that's really influenced my attitude toward publishing. We needed to get things out there. They may not be perfect. In fact, almost never were they perfect. Nothing's ever perfect. But they were particularly imperfect at a time when there was an urgency to collecting information. So it had to be done imperfectly. But better to get imperfect information out there that could help a clinician take care of a patient, maybe save a life or two, than to be a purist about it. Now, that has its problems. Some of what we published has not turned out to be true, and oftentimes because of the way the study was designed, not because of any ill intent on anyone's part. And some of the things that people were implementing in the clinic didn't turn out to help patients. But overall, I think that we did make a difference we and other medical journals make a difference in how patients were cared for, and the trend was very positive. So I'm actually proud of the work that we did. 
and other medical journals did in trying to streamline the process and get things out there, get things in front of people in a way that would make a difference. How many of them will stand the test of time? I don't know. We try to be a journal of record that people can look back and say, oh, well, this is true because we published it. And some of what we published during the epidemic may not hold up as well as some other things. Still, we're talking about millions of lives in the balance. I think the decision to go ahead with things, even if they were not at the same standard that we would publish ordinarily, was very important. You've previously said that your mission at the journal is to deliver highly valuable medical research and reviews for the healthcare professionals, but that how we deliver information may change. What kind of changes do you anticipate in the next one year, in the next five years, and in the next 10 years? I think that our ability to innovate in how we deliver information was altered by COVID, both in positive and negative ways. In positive ways, it has taught us that we can do things more quickly than we did before, which can be important in a breaking news situation like COVID. We were allowed to do that because of an incredible staff here. They really were working night and day, literally night and day and weekends to get the journal out when there was a huge amount of pressure to get things out quickly. But we clearly do have the capacity when it's important. So we were able to make some changes. We started a podcast on COVID and we just did that spontaneously one day. There really wasn't much thought that went into it. But I think that it has opened the door to doing other things, most of which we couldn't do because we were just so overwhelmed. But over the timescale of a year, I think we will see differences as we start to experiment with new things, with new videos, with new podcasts, with other ways of getting information out there with research summaries, with explanations of, with editorial type pieces, which explain why studies were done and how studies were done. And so I think that we're going to work hard to help our readers, and I say readers very advisedly here, get the information that they need. And that's because our readers aren't necessarily reading the journal. They may be reading the abstracts, or if that. So people get information in different ways, Younger physicians get information very differently from older physicians. We want to be able to be there for both of those groups, for any group, and be able to get them to understand in a way that we think is important with the kinds of rigor that we put into that process, what we're publishing and how that can affect the patients they're caring for. So can we expect to find the New England Journal on TikTok? Good question. I'm not on any social media personally, so I will defer to people on social media, but certainly we are on a lot of other social media platforms, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're on more going forward. Somewhat related to this, during the pandemic, we've never seen so much distrust in science, in medicine. How do you view your role and that of the journal in this? It's been a really very difficult time. What do you do about misinformation and about disinformation out there? I think that for me at least, the best thing we can do is make sure we produce trusted information. It's really hard to stamp out fires. It's really hard to say this piece of disinformation is incorrect, so is this one, so is this one, so is this one. And you can spread yourself thin doing that. I think we're much better off saying here's something that's true and putting it out there as something that's true and something that we stand behind. Hopefully people will trust us. There will be a 
population who won't believe anything that we ever publish, I'm not sure we can easily fix that. But we particularly are trying to communicate to healthcare providers because they, as a group, are a particularly trusted group. So we would like to earn their trust because their patients have trust in them. And hopefully that way, the sort of rigorously curated material that we're publishing can make it down to their patients. Can you tell us a little bit about what you view this editorial fellowship with the New England Journal to be and why a resident or a trainee or somebody who's recently completed training, why would they want to do this? Well, I'm going to turn that one back to you in a moment. I'll say for my part, I never was a fellow. Seems like an experience that I would have loved. The fellows get exposed to everything. They get responsibility for everything. We even let them do their own podcasts. And, and I can attest to that. <laughs> and I think that breadth is interesting, and I think it often changes people's thinking about what they want to do going forward. A lot of the people who come to us, some of them are interested in publishing. A lot of them aren't sure what they're interested in, and this gives them a chance to spend a year in a very supportive, I hope, and really intellectually rewarding environment and see a broad range of medicine and decide what it is that they really want to do that's really important to them. So I think it is a really great opportunity. It's been great for us, though. I have to say that having new blood is super important to us. Our editors come and they stay. It's a pretty good job. And that means we don't have the kind of turnover that we need in order to infuse new ideas into the place. The fellows have been great over the years. We've learned so much from our fellows. And I think that from our standpoint, it's really important. But now let me be the questioner. Roma, has it been a worthwhile experience for you? Absolutely, it has. I've always loved writing and reading and trying to communicate information in a succinct way. And the skills that I've learned during this year have definitely honed in on that experience. But it's also made me realize that I want to be a specialist, that I want to develop an area of expertise, as you were alluding to earlier. And so I've actually decided that I'm going back to fellowship training and I will be a hematology oncology fellow in the summer. Wow, that's like the second best specialty out there. <laughs> That's right. I, although I'd have to argue with you about that. <laughs> and I'm curious, coming into the fellowship, had you been thinking along those lines? What were you thinking about? I had actually done a health services research fellowship prior to doing this fellowship. And so I always knew that research was really important to me and that I wanted to get to the question of increasing health equity, specifically in cardiovascular disease and cancer. But I think this particular fellowship made me realize that medicine is so broad, and in order to effectively analyze it, you need to develop an area of expertise. And I found that what appealed to me the most was oncology. And plus, I really had some tremendous patient care experiences in residency. And so drawing on both of those two things together really convinced me to apply. We'd love to get more great fellows like you. So what would you tell people who are considering something like this? Well, you've really turned the tables on me. I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> well, you didn't tell me any of the questions you were going to ask me. It seems only fair. Sure. Well, so I would say this. I would say if you want to meet 
interesting people. If you want to be part of a journal club on steroids every Tuesday and Thursday, if you want to be challenged, you should do this fellowship. It's been absolutely eye-opening, and it's made me realize what types of research is valued and how to kind of go about doing this research in a good way. Well, thank you, Dr. Rubin, for sharing your journey and your perspective with us. It was great to learn from you. Well, thanks, Roma. And let me take this opportunity to thank you and your co-fellows for a great year and for all that you guys bring to the journal. Thank you. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Dr. Rubin for joining us today to discuss his path to the journal. We're always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hamnick. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of the NEJM Group.